0: Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamers' official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford.
1: Hello, Kat. How are you doing today? I'm
0: doing very well. Continuing to plug a look through Dragon Quest Eleven. Oh, good. Good for you.
1: you. You've done your homework.
0: Yes, I seem to have found Frozen.
1: <laughs> I think I know the region you're talking about. Um, I can't remember the name of it off, off the top of my head. I just remember like the first time I went there, like, I'm traveling along, and I see this pond, and there's this big, frozen black dragon in the pond. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm sure that's not relevant to anything that's going to happen later in the game.
0: I'm sure that I'm I'm just waiting for Let It Go to start playing as a soundtrack on loop. <laughs> it could be one of the other five songs that are playing at all times on Dragon Quest XI.
1: Well, it'll be a change.
0: Yeah. I, I like Dragon Quest XI uh, for the most part. Um, I managed to defeat a giant octopus uh, that oh, was very yeah. cartoony. And he actually wasn't too bad, ultimately, um, once I figured out the trick and the party composition. I think the thing that's interesting about Dragon Quest XI is that I feel like I kind of am incentivized to use, to
1: rotate in all of my party members, kind of like mm-hmm. Final Fantasy X. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely like every character has their strengths and weaknesses, and uh, a lot of the bosses you encounter will like take advantage of those. It seems like Jade and Veronica
0: are better against regular enemies, and Sylvando and Serena Serena, are are the best against bosses.
1: Yeah. Um, Sylvando, I found, is extremely invaluable against bosses because he's got a lot of the debuffs and the buffs, and uh, he has a really good healing attack called Raiders. Right no, Rap has Raiders right Ring, but I think um, Sylvando has uh, the Hustle Dance, which will heal your party for some HP, and that's really valuable to learn.
0: Yeah, I got Hustle Dance against the, oh, the painting. the the I needed to restart that painting battle a couple of times because it was taking control of di- uh, different party members. And if it took control of Savando, I was kind of in trouble because Savando was my main source of party healing.
1: Yes, yes. And um, one thing about status effects in Dragon Quest games is they are merciless. Like, this isn't the kind of game where someone falls asleep and they get hit and they wake up again. No, they wake up when they're damn ready to wake up. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's uh, my observation that the RPGs that unlock party healing the earliest are usually the easiest, and the ones that are really stingy with healing tend to be a lot tougher, and Dragon Quest XI definitely. um, It gives everybody kind of healing, but not very strong healing.
1: Yeah, um, it's definitely like single healing for quite a while until you get to a little bit later in the game, and even then uh, you have to know exactly who gets what. It's not like say like Final Fantasy VI where you have like minute control over what your party members learn. Well, I mean, in Final
0: Fantasy VI or whatever, you can just be like, oh, I'm going to heal my entire party every time because you can choose yeah. single or a uh,
1: single target,
0: or you can choose to dilute a spell by choosing the entire party.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I remember when I was young and I was playing uh, Final Fantasy VI. And I realized just how much easier it was compared to the Dragon Quest games I grew up with because I was like, holy moly, you can multi-target cure spells? That's insane. It was pretty insane. All right. We got a lot to cover, including a console in which Dragon Quest
0: did not appear. The Nintendo 64. Oh, poor Nintendo
1: 64.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh We're going to be talking about the rich RPG legacy
1: of the Nintendo 64. It didn't have a rich RPG legacy. (laughs) Spoiler alert. did not have anything. Well, it had a little bit. We'll talk about that.
0: We'll also be talking about all of the Pokemon news, including DLC for Pokemon Sword and Shield and the return of Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. But first, Axel Blood God is a U.S. gamer podcast. If you're enjoying the show, why don't you leave us a review? You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher or I think Spotify, though I'm not sure. If you, or if you like us on Spotify, maybe give us a like. I think that's how it is. Or yeah, follow us. Yeah, please do. I,
1: I think we are on Spotify. Follow us on all of the
0: things. Please do. Uh, If you have a comment or you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Send me a DM. Send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Leave a comment on the show notes on the on the site. We may read your comment on the show. We also have a newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday, courtesy of one
1: Nadia Oxford. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Well, this week it was freezing cold for a while there, so I started to think about tropical locations and RPGs, and I thought about how there really aren't that many of course, Sun and Moon, t- Pokemon Sun and Moon, is a, is a good example. Uh, the example I brought up was Chrono Cross, which, to my knowledge, entirely takes place on a tropical archipelago. And it, it's really nice how it's just surrounded by, like, warm blue waters, and I think about it a lot when it gets cold. Um, I actually had someone write to me, uh, reader Hao Tran, who said, uh, there is a sequence in Suikoden Four, which I never played, where your party can get stuck on a desert, tropical island. And you can, the way they put it is, uh, you can resist the "but thou must" dialogue options until your friends relent, and you get a sort of bad ending where you all just live on the island forever. Funny thing is, the ending isn't a cutscene; the game just continues playing as normal. You just can't leave. Uh, so, some other games that had tropical tropical locations:
0: uh, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. Oh,
1: that's right! Gosh, that's uh, it goes to show how much of an impression Ruby and Sapphire made on me, I guess.
0: Because it was set on basically Okinawa,
1: and the result was a lot of water travel, infamously. <laughs> <laughs> how could I forget? Oh my god! I see. I've only been to Tokyo, so I find it fascinating how Japan is such a tiny island, but it has so many like so much uh, climate like variations between the regions.
0: I have been to Okinawa actually, and it's a really cool island.
1: It, it so it's kind of a, a tropical location. Oh yeah, it's basically like Hawaii. Uh, oh nice! It,
0: it has its own. Uh, unique history and actually kind of tortured and controversial history which i won't get into but mm, yeah um yeah. it's a unique place and they definitely have i feel maybe their own identity or their own cultural identity much in the same way that hawaii has its own cultural identity so uh, another one is, I, I think final fantasy X is pretty uh pretty tropical oh you got a point there everyone just sits around in the water all day and plays blitzball I mean Waka is very like symbolic of whatever their take on is on island culture. <laughs> See, I have yet to play 10 so I don't know what their take is on island culture. Uh well you should play Final Fantasy 10. Maybe make it your project this year.
1: Yeah, to, to, I'll play Final Fantasy 10 and write an essay on what they think about island culture. We could do a uh a Final Fantasy 10 report
0: since we've already done Final Fantasy uh Final Fantasy 9. Yeah, that makes sense. Why not just go to the next one in the sequence? Yeah, uh, make it a part of the console RPG quest. If you're interested in a Final Fantasy 10 report, shoot me a note. I, I would be curious because I really enjoyed our kind of deep dive discussions of Final Fantasy 9. And mm-hmm. what else did we talk about? Oh, oh yes. Uh, Chrono Trigger was one. And I also assigned you Persona 4.
1: Yeah, that was yes, fun. That was fun. And you should finish 7.
0: I Yeah, I really should. But I don't know. Like, I... Every time I pick up my Switch, like Dragon Quest Eleven is the one that is kind of my go-to.
1: That's fair. I mean, the remake is coming out very soon, so you may as well just start from there, I suppose. All right, let's continue
0: on to the news this week, which was around Pokemon DLC. So, Pokemon Sword and Shield—it's uh, starting in June, and then again later this year, we'll be getting two large expansion drops. It'll be part of an expansion pass, which I believe in total will cost twenty nine ninety nine, or is that twenty nine ninety nine for each?
1: I think it's each. Um, okay, because that's pretty steep. If that's the case, I'm not one hundred percent sure on that, but uh, it's still highly preferable to buying a whole new game, <laughs> with, with very little new uh, uh, stuff. Counterpoint, Pokemon games used to cost about $29.99. Did they? I just remember, I, like, games were always expensive up here, so I don't remember playing uh, paying anything less than, say, $50. GBA games were, you know, between
0: 29 and, like, $35. Uh-huh. And Pokemon games were always a little more expensive than that. And they always stayed full price. They never went down. Yeah, I remember yeah. being in Japan and looking at a... At Pokemon Ruby, Pokemon Sapphire, and Pokemon Emerald, and they were all the same price. Oh wow! So I did get Emerald. I felt really bad for anybody who got suckered into buying Ruby and Sapphire over Emerald.
1: Yeah, like Emerald was a huge improvement over Ruby and Sapphire.
0: Oh, like gigantic! I mean, it was the comprehensive version, and it wasn't particularly close. But mm-hmm. it also, and also, like Ruby and Sapphire were very flawed <laughs> in their own yeah. ways, but. So, yeah, uh, so it is a little steep if it is an expansion pass for each one, or if each expansion is 29.99. but on the other hand, they are giving us a lot of content, entirely new area, tons of new Pokemon, mm-hmm. uh, new legendaries, uh, seemingly a new quest line in which you have a new rival and you're being trained up by a new character. So in that respect, uh, Pokemon fans are basically getting their third version, except as DLC, so you don't have to play through the whole story again.
1: Yeah, and I'm actually really, really eager about that, because one thing I didn't like about the old games and having to buy a whole new game is just going through all these story points again. When, and they usually change the story points, but in a couple of cases it was for the worse. Like, I really think they neutered uh, Sun and Moon story with Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon and um yeah so i just like the idea of buying an expansion that is pure content that i have not seen or experienced and given how there's actually quite a gap between the pa- the packs i think one comes out in june and one comes out in fall or winter the even if it is 29.99 per it, it's going to be such a space that i'm not even going to think about it for me
0: it really spoke to the difference that Difference in character this generation is going to take on because traditionally each generation has been kind of this discrete ecosystem, I want to say, in which each game has its own region, its own character, and its own monsters that really kind of take center stage. And there will be games that come out that generation that also highlight monsters from that. Uh, interestingly, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, for example, was a fourth-generation dun- fourth game and had a bunch of fourth-generation characters as a result uh, kind of leading the way, as it were. And, it, uh, and they would have tie-ins to the main games often, that would kind of enhance the sense of interconnectivity. I remember when Pokemon Diamond came out, a, one of the games made it possible to unlock a Legendary, and that was kind of the only way that you were able to do it, mm. though I had somebody trade it to me, so I was like kind of unlucky <laughs> on that yes. front. Um, but this one seems to be much more of a Pokemon Sword and Shield are the platform, and everything else stems through that. So we're much less likely to get uh, spin off games. And I would even say that may, remakes of uh, Diamond and Pearl might actually be kind of unlikely.
1: Yeah, uh, some people were expecting that this Nintendo Direct that we saw this week was going to be uh, an announcement about uh, Diamond and Pearl remakes, but that... I didn't expect them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I My understanding expecting... was that there wasn't going to be any
0: uh, game, new Pokemon games, or like oh. that's... It just doesn't seem like there would yeah. be any new Pokemon games this year, you know?
1: It doesn't make sense. Not if they're working hard on the DLC, because, I mean, we'll probably go into it, but there's a, a there's a lot of content coming, like uh, hmm. like they're restoring 200 of the uh, Pokemon that got uh, locked out of Galar region, for example.
0: Yeah, and there was immediately a misconception about it, where people were talking about it being stuck behind a paywall or whatever. It's like, it's, it's not really stuck behind a paywall. I mean, you can access it's it by not. trading... Uh, if you have yeah. Pokemon home, you can transfer all
1: of your old monsters over. So, Yeah, and I mean, they said that like very clearly and, and within the presentation. It's not like a piece of information that came out later. Oh, by the way, no, it was, it, it was the, that information pretty much followed the announcement about the 200 new Pokemon and just people decided to hit Twitter and, and get angry about something that wasn't true. What else is new? I mean, per usual, there's a lot of misinformation
0: kind of floating around, which is why we did a news story about it. We did see that the legendary birds are apparently coming back,
1: which is exciting, I guess, uh, if you don't have them already. Well, I just love the designs they have for them. Um, I'm really curious about Moltres. Uh, They've really changed the way Moltres looks, kind of has like a hooked beak. And I love the fact that I'm getting the impression that Zapdos is now a kind of a chocobo or a cassowary where it has these enormous, huge legs. And I think it might be flightless. And I think that's a really cool design change. Articuno has always been my favorite of them. Yeah, I was never a huge fan of Articuno, to be honest with you. I always liked uh, Zapdos and Moltres. Articuno
0: was the first ever Legendary I caught. Uh So if you'll recall in the original Pokemon Red, you'll be going through the the islands or the caves or whatever, Uh and you come out and you just see this bird standing there, and you have no idea what it is. You have no context whatsoever. And then you go into battle in it, and you already have the Master Ball at this point, and
1: I wasted my Master Ball on Articuno. (laughs) Did you, like, throw, like, 50 Ultra Balls at Mewtwo when it came time? Oh, yeah. I caught it with Ultra Balls. Oh, my God. Yeah, because I'm awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I I didn't know that was possible. But Articuno,
0: I I did not know about legendary birds or anything. So, without context, it was a really cool and surprising moment, right? And you got this very strong Pokemon. And the first Link battle I ever won was against my friend, who rocked this really strong Blastoise, who would always kick my butt, because I picked Charizard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so I brought out Articuno, and out of sheer dumb luck, I froze it and chipped <laughs> the Blastoise down to zero health and then finished off the rest of his team. And I don't think he ever beat me again.
1: <laughs> you destroyed his confidence as well as his Blastoise. I, I destroyed his life. You, destroyed, you it. ruined his life, cat. <laughs> no, Articuno <laughs> was great, though, for uh, that particular generation because, if I'm not mistaken, um, Ice types were a little bit OP in Red and Blue.
0: My favorite thing was to fake out. I learned how to fake out people with trade or with, um, uh, what's the word? With switches. So I mm-hmm. like figuring out double switches or predicting when somebody was going to switch to counter and hitting them with the the right attack. And Articuno Damn. was a great way of luring in opponents. I thought I was I was I thought I was uh, so awesome in Pokemon Red. I was gonna say you were like the Pokemon Patton. Yeah, I was awesome. Except that I didn't know anything <laughs> about Pokemon battling and Pokemon Red, because this was a time when you could fool yourself into thinking that you were awesome because the internet didn't exist, or it existed but it was a very nascent form.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then you like met your first like online. You did your first online battle, this first iconic online battle, and got destroyed.
0: Yeah, well, my first online battle ever was in like 2002 or something like that. And I had no idea what was going on with the new items or the new IVs or whatever. So I just picked my some strong-looking monsters from the original generation and the new games. And I remember I put Choice Band on one of them. I think it was um, uh, Absol. And I was like, well, this will make his move stronger. And then I was like, oh. And then I started <laughs> using Swords Dance. And then I discovered that
1: I couldn't stop using Swords Dance. And then I got swept. <laughs> Uh, the the person you were playing here with against must have thought you were on drugs or something. Well, I had no idea what I was doing. But I quickly learned
0: uh, the ins and outs of Gen 3 battling, and that became a large part of my life for a couple years there. But uh, with the expansions, I haven't actually finished Pokémon Sword yet because, like I said, I've been kind of knee-deep in Dragon Quest eleven. But with Pokemon Home coming out, that is exciting news for me because that means I'll be able to transfer over some of my favorite monsters and then I'll be able to kind of run the rest of the way through the story and start doing some of the post-game. I, have, uh, I intend to go and capture a whole bunch of legendaries in uh, Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon that I've missed. Uh, I, d- I never ended up catching the rest of the uh, the, the legendary three whatever's uh, the
1: taboos, mm-hmm. or whatever they were called. Yeah, I never, I never did that to be honest. My, I don't care
0: about catching them all these days. I only care about having a running collection of legendary monsters that I
1: keep as trophies. So I only, I only care about catching the cute ones. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I think just this is a series that you gotta set your own goals with. Pretty much, very much. That's why Pokemon is is still so popular because it you can do pretty much anything in that regard.
0: So yeah, I've got a little bit of a time limit. Um, it was sort of like when. Pokemon uh, well, Pokemon bank support was coming for Sun and Moon. I ran through and I got all of the ribbons that I possibly could in Omega Ruby and Alpha <laughs> Sapphire before moving yeah. on back over to Sun and Moon. Because once you transition them, they can't go back. Oh,
1: that's right. No, they can't.
0: So any thoughts on the DLC and or Pokemon Home, Nadia?
1: Uh, Pokemon Home is honestly not something I'm keeping close tabs on because I'm not someone who transfers her old Pokemon from game to game. But uh, I am looking forward to the DLC very much. I am glad that we saw in the um, the art, the, the the concept art they were showing us for the DLC, that uh, Nidoran is back, which means Nidoking is back, and Nidoking is by far one of my favorite Pokemon ever. I just think he's got such a cool design, and I'm glad he's coming back. I'm very interested in the uh, second expansion pass, because I kind of like the idea of exploring uh, a Tundra, and I... Just going by the outfits that they have for the characters, I almost get the impression it might be like a search and rescue sort of thing. And I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that you get to go inside the monster layers, uh, the Dynamax layers, and from the from Sword and Shield, and, and just kind of encounter legendaries there and explore the layers. And I think that's pretty neat because when I see the layers in the vanilla game, I'm like, what the hell are those and where do they go? So now we will find out. Once I get to the end game, I might indulge in the raids a little bit more. But I mean, I got I have to get to the end game first. Yeah, the the raids are actually quite a bit of fun, especially once you finish the game.
0: I've been meaning to check out how the metagame is going uh, on Pokemon Showdown, uh, and maybe get together a team and see how I feel about it. Because I I always at least dabble a little bit.
1: Yeah, um, one thing I need to get more into is just is the same thing learning about how the metagame is going. Because by all accounts, it's actually going very well. People really like the rental teams, and they really like the fact that, uh, frankly the the cull has uh really wiped wipe the slate for a lot of people and, and freshen things up. Although I guess once the Pokemon start trickling back in, that won't be the case as much anymore.
0: Well Rotom Wash is still meta, but <laughs> Gengar is apparently underused now, which uh it's a strange time. That is very strange. I didn't know that about Gengar. Gengar was always Uber strong, but yeah. uh but then they took away the fact that it was uh invincible to ground attacks so <laughs> yeah that'll that'll nerf it just a bit just a bit uh before we move on uh any thoughts on pokémon mystery dungeon any interest in that i mean i really like the graphics
1: i really like this the um the design they went with it kind of like a little bit of a storybook watercolor design i think that's really nice i have never played a mystery dungeon game and um i'm excited for this one because this will probably be my this will probably be enough to finally get me interested in the series i just never picked it up never picked it uh never went into it, but I feel like now that I understand more about like, what, is it like a I can't remember if it's like a dungeon crawler or, or a roguelike or whatever or, or both, but um, I just remember not being so enthused about the, the genre that it was part of back in the day and now I've kind of expanded my uh, RPG repertoire so I might, uh, I might appreciate it a lot more than I would have in, in the olden days, so uh, I'm thinking I'll download the demo and give that a try once I have time
0: I always give it a try and end up not liking it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they, at least you give it a try, though.
0: I know that Parrish, who is a big roguelike guy, big Shirin the Wanderer fan, never really cared for Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. I think he considered them to be too simple or too easy.
1: Yeah, I, I could see why they're not exactly going like, to make Net Hack for kids. No, they should break them. that would be
0: <laughs> break those kids make them realize what it's uh, what's in store for them what life is really like
1: that's what roguelikes are all about yeah they they sure are and that's part of the reason why i don't like them very much life but... isn't
0: fair sometimes you put on the hover boots and then you just can't reach a water source and then you die of thirst <laughs> <An> irony
1: <laughs> oh the irony of it all
0: <laughs> um okay and uh, you put this in the notes, and I, I guess this is something to promote. We started a new series. Uh, it was It's called Remember When, and this is of interest to Blood God readers. Um, it's about when the Xbox 360 tried to conquer Japan, and it resulted in some interesting RPGs, including the the Trias games like Infinite Undiscovery, Tales of Vesperia, Blue Dragon. Uh, and it still has some effects because Tales of Vesperia, for example never came out in the West on PS3 because Microsoft kind of threw its body in front of it. And there are certain games that are still only ever available on the 360, including Blue Dragon, though you can yeah. play them through Xbox backward compatibility. So go check out that article. I, I enjoyed writing it. Got a pretty solid response, and we'll keep doing those.
1: Sounds good. Yeah, um, we've talked a little bit in the past about Xbox's uh, Microsoft's attempts to woo the Japanese consumer, and it, w- it was a very good try, but it just did not work out.
0: Alright Nadia that's it for the news so let's continue onward to the Nintendo 64 console RPG quest. Okay, continuing onward with the console RPG quest, we're wrapping up the 32-bit era, or shall we say the 64-bit era, with the final console to be released in this period, unless you count the Dreamcast, which was kind of its own
1: mm, in-between. A... It was
0: kind of a tweener. but it really, it really was a tweener. It was a preteen. We'll get to that one eventually, but the Nintendo
1: 64, or as Nintendo 64 kid would say,
0: Nintendo 64! 64! Oh
1: my god! That poor kid. I wonder if he's still... <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he's living that down yet. Nadia, what is your history with the Nintendo 64? Uh, it was definitely the first uh, system that I saved up for and bought uh, for that generation. The PlayStation followed much later when I realized, oh god, this is not the system for RPGs. And it sure wasn't. But I definitely enjoyed it for other things. That you were, It was really the start of, if you want Nintendo's games, you have to get their systems that sort of... You know, credo going on because uh Mario sixty four, of course, was brilliant. It was it reinvented the three D platforming genre. Ocarina of Time was brilliant. It invented, reinvented Zelda. um it, it had like smaller, you know, more pleasant games. Like I don't even, I can't even t- recall off the top of my head that's kind of system it was. It was definitely a system for like Mario and for Zelda. It did have Majora's Mask of course, which was which was pretty excellent. Um, it's funny, thinking way, way back to the days when I was saving up for that system, I was thinking I was doing it not only because I love Mario and Zelda, but also because I love Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. And back then, of course, we associated Nintendo with Final Fantasy. We associated it with Dragon Quest. And uh, that turned out to very much not be the case anymore once this gen- once that generation got underway.
0: Yeah, I remember when Nintendo was starting to promote the Nintendo 64 through venues like Nintendo power and everything, and I remember looking at the screenshots of the three D characters or Mario and Luigi and everything standing on a three D cityscape and thinking, "Well, that looks dumb."
1: I remember those screenshots because God, that was in like Game Pro, one of the nineteen ninety three issues. That was one of the first issues I ever bought, actually, and thinking, "Wow, that looks kind of weird." <laughs> they were uh, promoting their big partnership with uh, what was it, Silicon Knights
0: or no, Silicon Graphics? You Silicon Graphics? The, uh And how they had these giant workstations, and they were making it out to be such a big deal, and of course, because I was such a Nintendo fangirl, I bought the the propaganda hook, line, and sinker. Though, uh, behind the scenes, um, and this is evident in, uh, there was a really good, long uh, retrospective about the development of the GameCube, and uh, apparently... Things uh, between Silicon Graphics and Nintendo weren't so great, honestly, so that really hampered them a lot. Um, I, like everybody else my age, was super excited for Nintendo 64 when it came out. Um, I don't remember being that excited about Mario 64, actually. <laughs> um, I-, I liked it a lot, yeah. Because I didn't really get it. Oh,
1: really? That's interesting.
0: I mean, it was this big kind of 3D, fully explorable world. Um and everything, and I was like, oh, I mean, that's really cool, like a cool proof of concept, and being able to manipulate Mario's face is really neat and everything, but uh, I don't know, like, this isn't, like, standing out to me. Maybe because it's more puzzle-oriented and more traversal-oriented and figuring out how to get all of the stars, and I've always been much more of a straight-ahead platformer fan.
1: Ah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, one setback that I did suffer... When I bought my m c c four is that our t v was ancient and it could couldn 't take it didn 't have a v ports mm. it just had uh the you know that crazy r f switch whatever the hell you 're supposed to do back then and a friend of my brothers who i've still talked to now had to come over and help us set up and the first thing he did he was the first one to play the damn system and the first thing he did was he takes Mario he starts spinning him around again and again yelling i'm on crack i 'm on crack i 'm on <laughs> crack and I never forgot that. <laughs>
0: Uh, I did not own a Nintendo 64. I asked my parents for one, and they did not buy me one. <laughs> you, should, you should divorce your parents, cat. I remember getting up uh, in December 1996 and sneaking out to the car where I knew the presents were in the trunk, uh, like in the dead of night, and like looking in there and being like, N64, 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 <laughs> and it was a VCR, and <laughs> I was a spoiled... I was a spoiled uh, white suburban kid. I, I
1: didn't really know it at the time. And I was just like, "Oh, VCR. Hey, a VCR in like 19... Wasn't the VCR like practically on its way out? <laughs> I mean, not really. It's, it's, it's,
0: I guess not. VCR was still having its heyday. It was cheap enough that you could gift it to a kid. And, oh,
1: okay. So I thought like it was for your
0: family. It was for you. Yeah, it was for me. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And I was able to uh, tape DS9 and Babylon 5 episodes. <laughs> That is better than N64, to be honest with you. Because it was the mid-90s, after all. But yes. my friends did have N64s, and we played a lot of party games at the uh, at their houses, and that's primarily how I engaged with it, and that's, I think, primarily how it's remembered these days, aside from the, the Nintendo exclusives, was it was a pretty happening party machine between Mario yeah. Party, uh, Mario Kart 64... Uh, you know, Super Smash
1: Brothers, which Goldeneye. came out on the
0: Smash for. Uh, oh, GoldenEye. Oh, my God. We have played so much GoldenEye. It was yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, we,
1: we used to. They actually, um, not myself, but like people I went to school with, used to actually bring uh, the N64 and GoldenEye into school on Fridays and just play it in the uh, media room. And there was N64 Mania in 1996.
0: <laughs> it was the hottest. It was. It was the hottest thing. Like that and Tickle Me
1: Elmo. Like they were just. Yeah, yeah impossible what was hell hell with that? There was. It, it, it was to the point where that was a year I got surgery for something, something to do with my jaw. And I was lying on the table, like, ready to be anesthetized. And for some reason, we're talking about, like, what do you want for the holidays? Oh, I already have an M64. It's like, wow, where do I get one? <laughs> the, the freaking anesthesiologist putting a needle into my arm.
0: Yeah, it seemed like all of my friends except me had one. But it meant that I got to go and play the latest and greatest games. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, the one that truly blew my mind and I loved and still is probably one of my f- top five favorite games of all time was star fox 64
1: yes that was a great game that was um i got that for my 17th birthday that was a i really enjoyed that and i appreciate all the more today like at the time
0: it was one percent to let down because i didn't like the music as much as the original star fox yeah
1: that was a one thing that i didn't like about it so much
0: but now i really like the music and the set pieces are awesome
1: and of course the the voice acting was mind-blowing <laughs> and the rumble pack it was when I when I listen to them voice acting now, I can hear how compressed it is, but it was still pretty great.
0: Yeah, so that was the the one big game. And then, of course, a couple of years later, Ocarina of Time came out. My friend got it day and date, and I didn't see him for the next couple of weeks because all he wanted to do was play <laughs> Ocarina of Time. I don't blame him. I was pretty much the same way. I, w- I remember not being that impressed by Ocarina of Time when I first saw it. Yeah, neither was my husband. He was just not an
1: Ocarina of Time fan.
0: Yeah, I saw the graphics, and I was like, yeah, eh. And, and that was the thing, like, I, I think the Nintendo 64 for the time when it first came out, uh, games like Wave Race 64 and Mario 64 and Star Fox 64 looked awesome, right? Mm-hmm. And then a lot of other games did not look so awesome.
1: Yeah, you really had to know what you were doing the, with the N64. And I remember the first time I realized, okay, this is not going to be a game full. This is not going to be a system full of pretty games. Is around the same time in the arcades is when Dungeons and Dragons: uh, Shadows over Mistara came out. And I was really, really huge into that game in the arcades. And I remember going on my school's BBS and talking like on the video game group like, "Hey, um is there any chance Shadows of Mistara is coming <laughs> to the N64?" And everyone was like, "Probably not. But it's coming to the Saturn." <laughs> They were making a big deal
0: of the arcade releases that came out in, like, 1995 or thereabouts. Uh, games like Killer Instinct, which I played a fair amount of and remember thinking, so wow, I. this is, like, the future. Look how amazing this game is. Or Cruising USA. And they, they both eventually came to the N64 and were severely compromised. Oh, uh, Cruising USA was terrible on the N64. Oh, it was, it was garbage. It was if, you, just... if you think about that now, like, can you imagine a Nintendo, basically a first-party game, wasn't it? Coming out... Yeah. On Nintendo, uh, on the home console, and it being terrible? It would
1: not happen, no.
0: Yeah, and then Killer Instinct was the same way because it was made by Rare, wasn't it?
1: It was Rare, and the problem with Killer Instinct Gold, it, it wasn't a bad game, but that controller was so terrible for fighting games, it was nearly unplayable. Yeah, and then they also had, like, Mortal Kombat, the Sub-Zero Chronicles or something like that. Oh, yeah, I asked my parents, like, um, you know, I was sick one time and asked my parents to rent me, like, Killer Instinct Gold, and they brought home that, and I was so mad.
0: That was our first real taste of the Nintendo drought, because, Mm. I mean, we had, at the early going, we had Mario 64, Mario Kart 64, Star Fox 64, and then there was a lot of nothing, <laughs> there was a lot of nothing until Zelda came out, yeah. I mean in nineteen ninety seven we got like Goldeneye, Star Fox, and Diddy Kong Racing. And Diddy Kong Racing was basic Diddy Kong Racing and Goldeneye were basically the ten pole games. That was it for nineteen ninety seven. And they had mm-hmm. to go up against Final Fantasy Seven.
1: Yeah, it was it was a bit of a a bit of a bad time for RPG fans like myself.
0: Yeah, uh, I think this was around this time Quest 64 came out, which was oh, God. Well, uh, probably the most infamous example that everybody always points to is the failings of the Nintendo 64's RPG library. The Nintendo 64, well, I, I think we've already kind of mentioned it, did not have a lot of RPGs. <laughs> we might have made that point once or twice. And Quest 64, uh, there was a lot of expectations around it for some reason, maybe because it was a game for the N64, so any game that came out on the thing was going to get a lot of attention?
1: As I recall it personally, um, it was just the only thing we really had to hold up against Final Fantasy seven. It was like, it's how dumb I was at the time. Like, people were like, oh my god, Final Fantasy seven! the demo is incredible, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, well, we're getting Quest 64. <laughs> <laughs> was it as bad as everybody said? You know what, I had never played it. Mm. But it's, if nothing else, like at the very least, at the very best, pardon me, is mediocre. I mean, um, yeah, the graphics really
0: don't stand out. Uh, the real time turn based combat is very simple. It super does not hold up. And it wasn't that great for the time, it just wasn't very deep. And exactly. I think RPG fans who are coming off the Super Nintendo. Uh, I mean, I think that was a rough blow, right? I mean, to see what the N sixty four was putting out versus what the PlayStation was coming out at the time.
1: Even as you say, from the uh, Super Nintendo to the N sixty four was just a, a humongous step down. You're talking about going from from Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger and and even Super Mario RPG to that.
0: Yeah, it was definitely the awkward adolescence of game development in general, where you're going through the very peak of sprite development to. Whatever the heck was going on with 3D development <laughs> on the Saturn, PS1, and Nintendo 64, and I mean, there were some good examples of stylish-looking 3D games. I think Metal Gear Solid actually
1: holds up surprisingly yes. well. It does. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I just think because it's so cinematic and uh, Kojima did a lot of really neat things with camera angles that well, it, helps it was hold insanely it ahead of its time.
0: It was also it was. a game
1: where nobody had facial features. Yes, and
0: something like that
1: actually helps it age a lot better
0: yeah the nintendo uh, i think the popular kind of discussion around the n64 is that it failed because it didn't have cd but Mm. and and that at least is part of the problem Uh, yeah because there just wasn't enough memory uh like producing cartridges was a huge bottleneck a huge problem sony did a great job of wooing away third-party developers who are sick of Nintendo's BS when it came to licensing problems and everything with Yamuchi, but if you look at the nintendo 64 from a technical standpoint anyway it was kind of fatally flawed in many ways um the way that the processor worked it couldn't really access memory properly games were like super slow you had to do like all kinds of technical workarounds just to be able to make things work properly there's this quote from Chris Sutherland of Rare who said, From a software perspective, we push the memory of the system very hard. As you move the camera around the map in Banjo Kazooie, the machine is constantly throwing out of memory things you can't see and pulling in the scenery that appears into view. This gave us major memory fragmentation issues. We used a pro- proprietary system that reshuffled memory continuously as you played to can eliminate the fragmentation. I doubt many N64 games at the time did anything like that. And overall, it meant we could dedicate a higher number of polygons to the characters and backgrounds than many other games at the time managed. So basically, these developers were having to come up with their own proprietary tricks and workarounds just to make their games look even halfway decent on the dang thing.
1: And that explains why Rare was one of the very few companies that could make games that look good on that system, along with Nintendo.
0: Yeah, so I think that... Sure, the the cartridge issues were definitely a big thing for RPGs, but I mean, games even just in general looked not great on the Nintendo sixty four, even for the time.
1: They no. looked they looked inferior to the PlayStation for the most part. Yes, uh, with uh, again, and it's just Nintendo and Rare maybe who could really make the games look good. But their um, their the writing was on the wall from the very start because. Uh, If you read the oral history of Final Fantasy VII by Matt Leone, basically it says outright that Square Enix, uh, or Square at the time, told Nintendo, hey, your system kind of sucks, maybe not so many words, but we can't do what we want to do with your system, even without the, even, you know, taking, putting apart the seat, putting the CD issue to the side. Your system just does not work as well as the PlayStation system does. And Nintendo told them to go fly a kite. So, That was uh, the the problem right there. Not just, there was, number one, the cartridge. Number two, it just wasn't an an easy system to program for. Number three, Nintendo was very arrogant and thought, well, we're Nintendo. You're going to develop for us anyway. And guess what? They didn't develop for them.
0: Yeah. I I mean, Square at the time was basically Nintendo first party. Like, it was as close to Nintendo as, say, (laughs) I don't know. It was almost Naughty Dog to...
1: Uh, Nintendo, yeah, right. I would say it was even closer now, like than Nintendo and Monolith Soft. It'd be like Monolith Soft saying, "Hey, screw you. Yeah, we're not we're not working with you anymore." I mean, which
0: I mean, Square obviously was not actually a subsidiary like Naughty Dog and uh and Monolith Soft, but it was as good as like they they had a special relationship with Nintendo. So to break that, and and it never recovered. It's never been the same. I was reflecting on that just recently when all of the Final Fantasy games, like 7, 8, uh, and 9, and 10, and 12, finally
1: came out on the Switch. I was like, oh my god. This is like the first time. It really is, isn't it? And I was thinking how, like, Cloud's appearance on in Smash still blows my mind when I, when I look back at that trailer. I'm like, it just feels alien to me. It feels like something that should never have happened. I mean, Square has traditionally been a company that really
0: pushes graphics and everything and like nintendo at a certain point by the game after the gamecube era just stopped prioritizing that stuff at all right and and instead it became much more and so square you know supported the handheld systems but it was always with kind of secondary releases like the world ends with you as much as i like it would never it was more of an experimental thing it wasn't a blockbuster release
1: yeah, and same with the uh, the Crystal Chronicles, which was, uh, again, kind of a four-player thing. You had to hook up your uh, four GBAs to play, pretty much. So, yeah, like, Nintendo 64
0: was really kind of screwed for third-party support. And, and a lot of that, and it kind of really hurt it in Japan. Supposedly, like, it sold horribly there. It sold horribly in Europe, too. And it's kind of insane to think about that the N64 actually sold a lot better in America than any other territory.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that for a very long time. And um did you fall for the thing with the the Silicon Graphics workstation examples that were you like they made like a they recreated part of Final Fantasy VI using that and, and the magazine said, "Hey, this is Final Fantasy and or 64 or whatever." Did you fall for that and think that was actually coming out I, like I did? No, I wasn't paying attention to RPGs that closely oh, at the right. time. So I was paying very hard attention. I was very convinced it was true. Uh, I mean well they kind of reported it that way didn't they they did and because you know like it was so much better in the magazine days everyone was so not corrupt <laughs> it,
0: yeah. it looked it looked bad like the you look at those screenshots and it looks so much worse than the
1: original game and yet it looked like the, the way that the our that the games ended up looking like on the N64 it looked fantastic so why did RPG developers shun
0: the Nintendo 64 I think we laid out the reasons pretty much it was so, selling poorly in Japan. Uh, Nintendo's old-fashioned licensing practices drove them a, a lot of them away. M- severe memory problems, sound chip problems. Sony throwing open the doors and saying, "Come on, come on over." And
1: plus, we were obsessed with cinematic at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, they were pretty cool for the time, and uh, that was one huge detriment on the part of the n 64 Like uh, I think I've said it before, but one of my m- one of my m- biggest memories is looking at the you know, going in front of game stores that day and just watching the the capture uh, of the the FMVs and stuff, and the, for like Mega Man Eight and Wild Arms and the really cool anime stuff they had going on, it was really there was nothing else else like it back at the time.
0: Yeah, FMV we put a huge premium on them. It felt like a big deal when you were watching an FMV cutscene. It really did. It felt like you were getting your money's worth. And so you just you couldn't do that in, on the Nintendo sixty four. And then you also had. I mean, the Final Fantasy VII had a kind of a a MIDI soundtrack and everything, but by and large, the PlayStation sound chip sounded a lot better than the N64 sound chip, which was kind of muffled.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Another thing to the advantage of uh, the PlayStation is that the PlayStation could easily distribute demos for their games, including Final Fantasy VII, and there was huge hype around that demo. N64 couldn't do anything like that. I remember in
0: my school, the general consensus was that the PlayStation was the system that you wanted to get for all of the best games, and the Nintendo 64 was a party system, but that it had very clearly fallen behind the PlayStation. This this was the, the gossip in the hallways of Metcalf Junior <laughs> High School. Straight from gym class. So, I mean, but there were RPGs, a few of them. Yes. Uh, one that tends to be forgotten, uh, Super Robot Tyson 64 that came out Uh, on so super robot wars even made it onto the n64 there's yeah uh, also super robot spirits which i think was more of a a different kind of game but super robot Wars 64 was a traditional srw game and you can kind of see the difference between it and the playstation just in the way that they approach it on the playstation they were starting to get much more toward where the series would be today where you would have like really elaborate animations and a really really nice soundtrack and uh, voice acting and all of that stuff and if you look at the n64 version it looks like they take the super nintendo sprites and kind of move them uh, they they put a super nintendo sprite against a 3d background and kind of expand it and make it smaller and the sound chip sounds really muffled, and it like it seems like they did everything they could with it, but it's uh maybe not the, the, maybe there's a reason it's not remembered very well. The way you describe the graphics sounds really horrible it it doesn't look good, honestly, yeah it, yeah it i mean it actually could be a lot worse. the sprites are in some ways surprisingly good, but i mean the n sixty four not really known for sprite
1: work, is it? <laughs> No, um, we had, gosh, I'm trying to think, I was going to say Mischief that wasn't. that wasn't a sprite, um, it was a side-scroller, but same with Yoshi's Story, it wasn't sprites, it was models. Oh, gosh, there really aren't that many sprite-based games on the N64. I
0: mean, if you're going to make a game for the N64, you're going to make it 3D, right? Because that was kind of what it was. That was pretty much all it was really good at, if that. If you look at the N64,
1: the, once the shine wore off, it started to feel really kiddy as a system. Yeah, and I remember uh I think it was Parrish pointed out years and years and years ago how you could just tell by the way they made they released that that Pikachu on N64 with the the button in the foot.
0: I mean, it was for kids. Yeah, and they, like Pokemon completely exploded at this time. And Right. Any other time like Pokemon should have been front and center on the N64, but it really wasn't. It was mm-hmm. a Game Boy series. And the N64 yes. only ever got spin-offs. So that's that certainly did not help it in its like later days, right? Where no, no. I mean, the games that we got on the Nintendo sixty four were like, uh, "Hey, you Pikachu!" <laughs> <laughs> that never. Uh, if you ever watch people like try to play that? It's hilarious because it doesn't work. Full of so. uh, all sorts of really dumb. Uh, I mean, it was just one more example of a, an accessory because it was like a microphone. I think that you used to talk to to Pikachu. Uh, there was Pokemon Stadium, which was a much more traditional, and Pokemon Stadium too was
1: actually a really good looking game and really fun to play
0: and everything but when Pokemon Stadium came out in Japan it didn't even have all the monsters.
1: Yeah, I remember. I think our Pokemon Stadium is their Pokemon Stadium 2 and yes, it has they had to release it again so it had all the monsters in it. And this was back when there was 151 monsters. So <laughs> they really went all out with Pokemon Stadium 2 though, where you had like the
0: Game Boy Tower where you could basically play the Game Boy games uh through yeah. because you had the little pack that plugged into the controller where you could plug in the game. And not only did it access your team from the actual Game Boy game, but it actually lets you play the game um, on fast speed as well, which was kind of cool. That is pretty cool. All kinds of really fun challenges and everything that you could access. It was really fun to battle all of the gym leaders. Um, uh, It had a fully like 3D Pokedex and all of that. And so for the time, Pokemon Stadium 2 was really neat, but it was only ever a companion game.
1: Yeah, it actually makes me wonder how things would have been different for Pokemon if, say, the games came out while the N 4 also proved to be a humongous hit. Like, would Game Freak have jumped over to the main consoles that much more sooner instead of, well, just this generation?
0: I don't think so, because Game Freak has always put a big emphasis on shareability, and that meant handhelds. Right, right, with the link cable and all of that. Uh, one game that was cool, it wasn't an RPG, but it was RPG-related, Pokemon Snap, which I think... Yeah, I never played that. Oh, it was fun. Uh, where they put you on a 3D uh, rails, basically, and you would try and find ways to get Pokemon to do special things. You were trying to lure out monsters and get, like, excellent shots of them. And it was really tough because you were on a mine cart that was, like, always kind of moving. And so... <laughs> Um, I played a lot of uh, Pokemon Snap, and it was a really enjoyable game. I desperately wish that they would make a new
1: one for 2020. Mm-hmm. Like A lot of people, people have been asking for Pokemon Snap, 2 since, God, years and years. And when the Wii came out, sorry, the Wii U, everyone was like, oh, here it comes, here it comes. It never came. I think that the correct
0: approach to take with a Pokemon Snap game is a fully... 3d open world game in which you can just wander through these gorgeous environments luring out pokemon and getting pictures and your sole goal is basically to enjoy this beautiful environment uh complete challenges and try and level up to the point where you can eventually take pictures of legendary monsters
1: i actually like that idea a lot that would be a lot of fun i'd love to play that so that's my pitch so Uh,
0: Pokemon was a big deal, but ultimately, uh, while it was certainly, they did their best to connect it to the Nintendo 64, ultimately it was a Game Boy Color game, and that just goes to show where the N64 kind of stood at the time. (laughs) Yeah, it was um, not exactly at the top of the heap. Uh, But some actual real RPGs um, for the Nintendo 64, there was Ogre Battle 64, which, I mean...
1: It's not like played. Tactics Ogre. It's more of a high-level strategy game, actually. Oh, okay. I was thinking, like, oh, okay, it's it's Ogre Battle 64. It's just, you know, Ogre Battle. But no, I never played 64, so I'm not sure.
0: So in Ogre Battle 64, you're trying to conquer these these uh, strongholds, right? And when you, you're pushing army out and then they come back in. So it's more like a kind of a strategic thing rather than going through these, like, super winding... Uh, political tales. Like there's definitely that look and that feel to it. And and it's kind of sprite based. It's kind of a 3D sprite, a little bit like Suikoden. Um, Right. And the way that you set it up is that you have these heroes and then the heroes have armies behind them. And then a lot of it is very hands off. And so you're more of a general than somebody who is actually, you know,
1: controlling these characters. Right, right. So, it's uh, it's funny, when you think about N64 RPGs, you kind of have to think of outside of the RPG box, because so many of them are just like, uh, it's kind of an RPG, but not really. Yeah, that's the thing, is that,
0: like, so many of these games really are outside the box. They're kind of real-time, term based games. Like, people are citing Hybrid Heaven, which... Yeah, which, I don't know about that. I don't know about that one, Prime. <laughs> the, there was Mega Man Legends. Would you consider that an RPG?
1: Um, no, absolutely not. Um, I love Legends, but no, the most RPG you're getting is that, uh, your stats are kind of there when you change and upgrade your weapons. That's about it, but not even. Uh, Paper Mario came around, and that was the legacy
0: of Super Mario, uh, Super Mario RPG. And, and yet it was, and and it was definitely RPG ish, very RPG light, but
1: there was a turn based component to that one. There was. Um, When you say RPG Lite, you're not off the mark because, uh, like, you know what? I never play the original Mario, Paper Mario. I I love Thousand Year Door, but it's the same thing where you have Mario and you have, I think, one party member. And even though it's basically very fast paced battles, and I I guess I would still go ahead and call it an RPG because, yeah, you are leveling up and all that good stuff, but it's, you know, compared to, say, on the PlayStation where you're having like Suikoden two, like these six party battles through this like winding road of political intrigue. Not quite like that, but definitely stand up on its own for what it is. I absolutely love the idea of just kind of pairing up with like Mario's traditional foes and, and making party members out of them. Like, Oh, Mario's traveling with the Goomba. Oh, Mario's traveling with the Parakupa, that kind of stuff. I love
0: And definitely the most beautiful, uh, definitely the most beautiful N64 game.
1: Yes, um, by far. I remember people being a little bit mystified when it first came out, like, what the hell is this? But no, it's not a coincidence. That is the game that holds up most, of visually, of all the N64 games. So stylized. I'm really impressed that Nintendo was able to pull that off
0: on the Nintendo 64's hardware.
1: Yeah, um, I think there's, like, articles that have been written about what they did and, and the tricks they used, but yes, I am absolutely... I think one of the reasons they went with that whole style is because they knew of the N64's limitations by then, but they still wanted a game that looks good, and they got it. And they certainly did. And Paper Mario kind of continues to exist
0: to this day, though it's more of a second tier or third tier Nintendo RPG, I would say.
1: It's not even an RPG anymore. It's more of a... More of a platformer-ish it, thing? More of a platformer, yeah. Um, I think the The, the Wii closest. version definitely
0: turned it into more of a
1: platformer. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of the Wii version. And uh, Color Splash just came out. That was more of a a that was more of a, um, an action game. But uh, Sticker Star, I think, is when people started... To, if you say the word Paper Mario Sticker Star, you'll get a course of people cursing Miyamoto. Because supposedly he said, why does an RPG about Mario need a story? And they took it out. Um, but some people really, really, really hold a grudge against Miyamoto for that.
0: Well, that's kind of like what happened with Mario Galaxy, right? Where...
1: Yeah, they were yeah. really
0: at odds over whether or not it should have a story, and the one of the developers of it, one of the main developers, kind of got his way. And
1: I think that Mario Galaxy is the better for it, actually. So do I. Um, I actually think the storybook, not only is the storybook, gorgeous, but I think the story is is very nice. I mean, there's a reason why Rosalina is everyone's favorite. I I think I, one thing I want to kind
0: of point out about this particular era of RPGs, um is that we are coming to an end of a period in which there was a clear delineation between RPGs having stories and then everything else, right? Where Mm -hmm. the arcade era is slowly changing. Because this was, in the US at least, this was about the time that arcades started to die. And this was almost, this was the beginning of the end for arcades in North America. And Nintendo and Sega always drew really heavily on arcade heritage. So genres like shoot 'em ups, beat 'em ups, that kind of thing started to fall off around this time and started to be replaced by blockbuster games uh, that would actually have stories. And that would become a lot more evident in the next generation for sure. But this was kind of the last period in which there was that clear, blocked-off period where it's like, okay,
1: you have RPGs, which have really good stories, and then everything else. Gosh, yeah, it was around that time when arcades—because arcades got kind of a, a second chance at life because of DDR. That was a huge, and huge fighting thing. Games. And fighting games, yeah. But I think it was first fighting games, then DDR. And once DDR died out, it just—arcades have, have never really come back since then. So, yeah.
0: Because um, if you think about the and, 32-bit yeah, era— lots of platformers, right? Yes. Where you had Mario 64. And uh, I mean, PlayStation was putting out stuff like Banjo and Spear Spyro. And those games didn't really have stories, <laughs> you know, they, they had mascots. They were mascot games.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. And of course Mario 64 didn't have a story either. And I mean, you think
0: about some of the best PlayStation games outside of, uh, outside of the RPGs, like they they didn't really have stories, not not too much. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until the PlayStation 2 where that started to change. But yeah, this, this kind of marks a pretty clear break point, I feel, uh, where things began to change and story became less of a clear marker. Though RPGs would tell much more complex stories often than a lot of action games, for example.
1: Yeah, but I think you're right uh, about that because I have noticed that Pretty much every game has a story these days, uh, to the point where you come across a game that doesn't have a story, and you're like, wow, this game just gets to the point, doesn't it? And games like Last of Us, for
0: example, uh, have a very emotional and like, pretty good story that cribs directly from the road, but I, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. <laughs> And that's not an RPG by any stretch of the imagination, right? Same with mm-hmm. Breath of the Wild to some extent. Like, it's just every every game has a story now, for the most part. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, heck, Modern Warfare has a freaking story, if you can call it that. So RPGs yeah. are much more about uh, term based gameplay or or how you build up your characters and all of that stuff. I mean, the story uh, and the choices that you make in the story versus just having a story. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the RPGs that did not happen. And a few. the one that really comes to mind is Earthbound 64, which was kind of a whole dang thing <laughs> with the was, uh, yeah. Nintendo 64 DD, the disk drive, which <laughs> was one of Nintendo's <laughs> many attempts to try and create a peripheral that would give Nintendo 64 expanded abilities. And I got to say that like anytime you're in a situation where you're Specifically, putting on peripherals designed to expand the capabilities of your of your system, and you're splitting the the fan base that hard. Uh, you're going to have some trouble. Yeah,
1: yeah. Especially since uh, the sixty four DD was was planned like long before the system even came here. So uh, I think Nintendo knew from the start. Oh man, I think we're in trouble. Uh, either way, the sixty four DD did not take off. Uh, you will find some YouTube uh, it came out in Japan YouTube videos. Never came out it Came out in here. Japan. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like you will find some YouTube videos of people in Japan playing like Doshin the Giant which actually looks like a pretty interesting game. But um for a while there it looked like RPGs were going to be on the the 64DD and everything was going to be okay. But um that didn't end up being the case. I guess much like the Famicom Disk System, the games intended for the disk ultimately wound up wound up being on the uh on cartridges anyway or just outright canceled. And I think you're probably going to bring up mother three which yeah was a whole thing as you said mother three i remember reading about it in magazines and being a little bit confused because i wasn't i really wasn't into earthbound then i never bought it i, I didn't play it until years and years down the road and um it was uh, all credit to ape and shigesato toy it, it looked pretty terrible graphic graphic wise like a lot of things on the sixty-four. Uh, if you look into the history of the game, though, now, if you go to Starmen.net or a million other places that have it up, it's really, really interesting because uh, a lot of what was cancelled in in Earthbound 64 eventually wound up in Mother 3 on the Game Boy Advance. So when I kind of compare screenshots and information between the two versions of the game, you see a lot of cut content like, you still see a lot of parallels between the content, like certain characters, certain locations. You still have uh, the character of Flint. You still have the character of uh, Lucas and Close. You still have the dog, Boney. You still have certain towns. So, and I think the even much of the plot involving Porky and the Chimeras uh, was intact. So, uh, I, liked, I really liked looking back and, and seeing what stayed and what went. I think... Earthbound 64 was originally supposed to put Flint as the main character, whereas Earth Mother 3 makes uh, everyone kind of the main character for a while until it settles on Lucas. So there, there are definitely some dis- some differences. Like we see uh, screenshots where Lucas is hanging out with Close, who of course uh, disappears, quote unquote, very early in in Mother 3 in the Game Boy event. So yeah, it, it's a it's a pretty cool history. Uh, go back and read it sometime if you can. But the long and the short is it. They just could not hack programming in three D for the N sixty four because the the system was pretty much a loss by then.
0: Yeah, I always thought it was interesting that it was going to be a little bit similar to Donkey Kong on the Super mm-hmm. Nintendo before getting shifted over to the Nintendo sixty four.
1: Yeah, um, it was definitely. I think it was. It was definitely a little more action based, although there was some some screenshots of the of the turn based battle system. So there were still turn-based battles there somebody who played the a tester who supposedly
0: played the demo cart and then also worked on mother 3 claims that that we, we we aren't missing anything there isn't some lost earthbound game out there that ultimately this long long process culminated in the creation of mother 3 and that was the that was the end point of all of that <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, by the sounds of it, it was maybe 30% complete. Uh, Itoi said or 30%, I think Miyamoto said 60%. It, there was no way it was 60%. They It was more like a, kind of a, a, a handful of ideas that they put together for demo videos. And, of course, you had some rough story outlines and stuff like that. But, yeah, we're not, I don't think we're missing very much. Uh,
0: I suppose that, I, I was always a little surprised that RPG developers didn't take advantage of the RAM expansion. Uh, which came out in like 1999 and was like a big part of Rogue Squadron, for example, really helped. Uh, It really helped with the memory issues that the system had. But then again, I suppose by that point, they were all just making games for the PlayStation, so it didn't matter.
1: Yeah, I think by that point, um, it was a little too late. I had the RAM expansion for Donkey Kong 64, which, which is funny, because the only reason the RAM expansion was there in Donkey Kong 64 is because the game kept crashing, Rare had no idea why, they could not figure it out, and for some reason putting the RAM expansion in made the problem go away. Never figured out why, but that's why it was there. And I remember it most for Majora's Mask. And the reason I remember that is because uh, Ocarina of Time, its main problem in my eyes was that its overworld was dead as hell. There were no enemies on there except at night time you got like a couple of skeletons coming up and, and, and chasing you. But I remember being really impressed with uh, the overworld of Termina and how it was really filled with enemies. Like you had like slimes, you had Dodongos, you had like just uh, birds getting up on your grill. It was a a very lively place. And um, I'm actually like one thing I was actually a little bit angry about when Ocarina of Time came out on the 3DS was that they didn't upgrade it so that there were some dang enemies on the overworld.
0: I think it says everything you need to know about the N64's library, that Ocarina of Time is consistently listed as the best RPG for it.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, I'm looking at the list of RPGs for the N64, and it's like, Ocarina of Time. It's like, I have to give it to you because I have nothing else. Uh, it's not an RPG, though. No, it's really not. There's there's very little it's that's RPG It's a game about solving puzzles. About it. It's an action adventure game. It was very interesting because it was our first time solving those puzzles in 3D. And I remember being like I think that's what really enthralled me about the game was you had your traditional like, for example, in the first dungeon, you had a traditional torch lighting puzzle. And just solving that in the in three D for the first time just it just blew my tiny little mind.
0: Blew my tiny little mind.
1: <laughs> Pretty much.
0: I I think the most irritating storyline in gaming today is people saying that Ocarina of Time is overrated.
1: Yeah. Um Here's the thing. I there are other Zelda games I would rather play in this in the here and the now, but as a game that as a, as a game that just is a footnote in in gaming history, like it is one of the most influential games of, of all time. Period. Yeah. Not only is it incredibly influential, it holds up.
0: It's a surprise. It it's a an amazingly huge game that came out for the N sixty four. They truly went all out. It has really good dungeons like the forest temple
1: is yes. outstanding and gigantic Forest Temple's still one of my favorite dungeons of all time i complained about the overworld i still think it's really boring and at the time it was incredible because oh my god a horse but the dungeons i don't have too many complaints about how the dungeons are except well even the water temple i managed to do as a kid back in the day but
0: yeah the design is so intricate And the graphics are kind of hold up surprisingly well in kind of a stylish, stylized way, especially the final battle against Ganon looks awesome and actually still looks pretty cool. Um, The way that Link progresses and and develops, Uh, man, they did all that on the Nintendo 64. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, um, you're right about the way the game looks, it being definitely one of the better looking N64 games, which by today's standards, that's still not great, but... Uh, the models and the lighting effects I think are really nice. Uh, I would say don't look too hard at the rendered at the at the backgrounds because uh, if you look at the lost woods and some of the trees there not the polygon trees but the kind of the tree jpegs they have in the background like they, they look pretty terrible but otherwise the, the enemy models are still pretty great
0: and they fixed the dang uh, they fixed the, they solved the problem of 3d targeting. Which wasn't really a thing. Like people didn't know how to interact in 3D space with objects, and Nintendo's like, "Oh, we'll create a
1: targeting button. There you go." <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's it makes combat still great. Feel great. Uh, like they, they created st- that. I I still get mad that there were games after *Ocarina of Time*, like years after, that didn't that did auto targeting instead of giving us a, a Z targeting. Like y- you people, like what is your problem? Nintendo solved this problem. Why aren't you taking their their idea? And there's so many elements of *Ocarina of Time* that remain iconic to this day,
0: like the the Temple of Time. Like, we were kind of ragging on the sound chip, but it had that beautiful kind of Gregorian chants going mm-hmm. on in there, or like when you pull the Master Sword for the first time and the way the camera turns, cool. and you s- see pretty good lighting effects. It's uh, surprisingly emotional, especially when mm-hmm. you're dealing with the the, 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 the Kokiri and who seem kind of doomed and it's a a sad story but it works really well within the story the scope of it is incredible i mean wow ocarina time i i don't think it's the greatest game of all time which some people have said but
1: yeah some people think
0: that yeah good lord i mean it was a game and it, it was the magnum opus i think of of, like, Nintendo up until that point. They just put... They went all out. They put everything they had into it. I, I certainly think it's better than anything that came out um, after it up until probably Breath of the Wild. Like, in terms of Zelda games? Yeah, I, I think it's better than Wind Waker or Twilight Princess mm-hmm. or
1: Skyward Sword, all of which were fairly flawed. Yeah, um, I think I agree with that. And I, I am probably one of the only people who really like really likes Twilight Princess, but... Um... It, it, it built on what uh, Twilight. Uh, it, sorry, it built on what Ocarina of Time did. Just to to give an idea of how important Ocarina of Time was to begin with. And Majora's Mask, like really brilliant game, and I know that there are people who stand behind it,
0: like as a great offbeat, super experimental. But I mean, it was
1: built on the platform established by Ocarina of Time. Right. Ultimately, which is perfectly fine. Like yeah. I know that uh, Breath of the Wild too will probably end up being the same way, where Nintendo is just taking. This engine they obviously put so much time and effort into and saying, hey, let's have another game in there. It's like, that's perfectly fine with me. All right. So let's look back. What is the legacy of the Nintendo 64 when it comes to RPGs, if any? And what (laughs) is the best RPG on the Nintendo 64? Oh, God. Um, So we just had this whole conversation about how the legacy of the RPG on the N64 is – Well, RPGs that aren't really RPGs. (laughs) Zelda, there you go. Zelda's not an RPG, but we don't have much to go on here. The legacy of the Nintendo 64 is the breakup of Square and Nintendo
0: when it comes to RPGs.
1: I, I totally agree with that. That was the, I think that was the first time I realized, wow, Nintendo and RPGs are actually, they're not inseparable. They are very, very much separable.
0: Yeah, that was the end of complete domination by Nintendo over the RPG space up until yes. that point. Because, I mean, we've talked about it all al- already on the NES, when I had Dragon Warrior, on the Super Nintendo, during the, the true golden age of Square and all of those other games. I mean, Nintendo owned RPGs. And from
1: that point onward, Sony owned RPGs. Yes, because it's not even like, the Saturn versus the PlayStation, where, okay, everyone had a little bit of something, but Nintendo had nothing for RPGs, pretty much.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of the RPGs went to handheld. And, yeah. I mean, I was, the Nintendo DS, I mean, we'll get to it eventually, great RPG library in many respects. Uh, same could be said for the Nintendo 3DS, but I, I don't think either of them measure up to the PlayStation 2, like, not
1: even close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the PlayStation and PlayStation 2 still, like, probably hold the... the championship for that as for the best rpg on
0: nintendo 64 i mean it's kind of a grab bag uh i you should probably play a paper mario yeah i would definitely give it a paper mario um i'm just like no, battle 64 to... is such an esoteric and kind of hard to engage with game these days like i yeah. downloaded it on the wii virtual console back in the day i was like oh, what the heck is going on with this game
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah what the heck is going on It pretty much sums it up i'm just like thinking of quest 64 being like, woohoo, I'm the winner by default. (laughs) The two greatest words in the English language. I mean, But no, Paper Mario gets it. When I was doing
0: research, uh, everybody was saying, ah, Quest 64, like, what went wrong? Like, I think the obsession with it is just because it was kind of an RPG-ish game. But otherwise, it's pretty
1: unremarkable, ultimately. Yeah, I think unremarkable is the word that sums it up best. It it wasn't necessarily, like, from what I can tell from watching videos of it, it wasn't really that offensive. It was just completely forgettable. But since it was on the NCC4, what else was there? So, of course, people are going to zero in on it. Okay, that was our console RPG quest for the Nintendo
0: 64. Do you have any feedback? Do you have any memories? Do you have any thoughts on the Nintendo 64's RPG history? And is there anything that we missed? Go ahead and send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a DM on Twitter or leave a comment on the show notes on usgamer Dot net okay let us continue on to the mailbag okay folks last week we did a pro preview of all of the big RPGs that are coming out in 2020. It's going to be a huge year for RPGs. Here are what you had to say about it. Radical Defect says, I'm one of a tiny legion of people most excited to play Fantasy Star Online 2 in English for the first time after a, you know, eight year wait. I may literally end up buying an Xbox just for it. Getting to play a few other games I've missed from several decades of avoiding Microsoft consoles would be a nice bonus, I think. The Dreamcast and the first PSO were a huge part of my youth.
1: Folks I played that game with when I was 13 ended up at my wedding by 30. Wow. Aw, that's really cool. That's amazing. Uh, Actually, I have to say, I have to point out, my husband is very much looking forward to uh, Fantasy Tower Online 2, so there you go, you're not alone. Shane Benhausen from 1UP was a
0: giant pso fan we might have to get him on here for the dreamcast episode oh that would be that would be really interesting i'd like to hear his thoughts sammy j9 says maybe it's because i've been itching to replay the original for ages but currently my most anticipated game of 2020 is persona 5 royal which is kind of funny since Ooh. the game i've already played like 90 percent of same goes for Xenoblade, and to a lesser extent, FF7 Remake. It feels odd that I'm most excited about all these games that aren't exactly new, but on the other hand, it's going to be a year full of warm blanket comfort food games, and given how 2020 is already starting out, that sounds wonderful. That said, Bravely Default 2 will be great. I'm also hoping we may see Paper Mario. Oh, and Tales of Arise. I nearly forgot about that one. Cautiously optimistic, now that it has a much more appealing art style, apparently an actual budget. <laughs> I want to add with Persona 5, I was taking a look at the trailers for the Persona
1: the Persona 5 Scramble Muso game for the Switch, and uh-huh. actually it looks pretty good. Um, there was actually uh, something I tweeted a-, a while back about how, you know, I don't really want another Muso game in my life, but I do want Persona 5's extraness in my life again. And the Musou game has that, like, I was looking at a screen transition just like with uh, the 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 person playing change the page and you just have this animation of Joker leaping up onto the top of the menu. And it's so ridiculous and so unnecessary and I absolutely love it. I like that. So I
0: understand. It has all of the extra-ness that you were just describing. And I like that it's not just fan service because, like, so many of these Musou games like mm. Gundam and Zelda and Dragon Quest are really just giant fan service games, right?
1: Yeah. Whereas yeah. this game
0: is an actual story. Like, it's an actual addition to Persona 5. I mean, we'll see how good that story actually is, but it, it makes me more interested in playing it, I think.
1: Yeah, um, I will be glad if, you know, say, Atlas can't bring us Persona 5 on the Switch for whatever reason. Maybe they're like, okay, well, we'll we'll do our best for you, you poor Switch owners. And Gamer
0: Law says, like Nadia, Bravely Default 2 tops my list for 2020. Trials of Mono remains a close second, and I will be interested to see if anything is announced for Fire Emblem, given that this year marks the 30th anniversary of the franchise. Mm. I was having a conversation with some friends—this is me talking, by the way—about— uh, what game would we most want to see remade from the Wii or GameCube on the uh, on the Switch? And I said mm-hmm. uh, I put Fire Emblem Path of Radiance on there, which was the oh. GameCube version. Um, I would love to play that game with upgraded graphics, maybe an upgraded art style on the Nintendo Switch. I think that would be really great. I feel like I don't want to go backwards in Fire Emblem as long as I have three houses. So you don't want to go back to the traditional version? Like, you want to go with this style no. now?
1: Yeah, I really like the way that Three Houses felt, but I'm also awakening trash, so. <laughs> awakening trash. <laughs> That's what I am. And on that note, Axe the Plugout is a U.S. Gamer podcast.
0: You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore CatBot, Nadia at Nadia Oxford. Send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net, and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, which can be found on the front page of the website we got lots of exciting new content coming up through the rest of january including lots of preview opportunities that i'm really looking forward to and mm. some new podcasts that are going to be coming out so please look forward to that in the meantime we'll be back as usual next monday until then for nadia and myself i've been Cat bailey happy adventuring